Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 24th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, public school advocates make their case in court against a program that sets aside federal relief funds for private schools. Then it's been five years since Hurricane Harvey caused massive flooding in Houston, Texas. Now experts are examining green methods of flood control, plus the answers and questions that come from the 1950 census. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A program created by the Mississippi legislature to provide grants to private schools is being challenged in court by public school advocates. During the legislative session, lawmakers passed two bills, now law, that are at the center of the legal debate. One creates a grant program to fund infrastructure projects for institutional members of the Mid-South Association of Independent Schools. The other bill allocates $10 million of federal coronavirus relief funds for that program. Lawyers representing parents for public schools say such a program violates the state constitution. Following arguments in the Hines County Chancery Court yesterday, attorney William Bardwell of Democracy Forward explained the language of the code with our Kobe Vance. Section 208 of the Mississippi Constitution clearly forbids sending public money to private schools. It precludes the state from sending any funds to schools that are not conducted as preschools. That is exactly what the program we are challenging does. It it unabashedly appropriates millions of dollars to the exclusive benefit of private schools. What precedent do you think this could set for Mississippi if this is not overturned? Well, if the state can do this, if the state can appropriate $10 million dollars for private schools, then it can appropriate $100 million. It can appropriate a billion dollars if it chooses. Uh, The Constitution puts a strict limit on the amount of money the state is allowed to appropriate to to private schools, and that limit is zero dollars. And so if they're allowed to go over that in this case, then the limit doesn't exist anymore. What were some things that were brought up during the discussions today that you thought were important for Mississippians to know about? I think the most important thing for people to understand here is that this is an appropriation of public money for the exclusive benefit of private schools. Uh, This is not a program that public schools and private schools 
can compete against one each against one another in. Uh, private schools alone are going to receive this money, uh, and that is an obvious competitive disadvantage for public schools. In the legislature this year, when they passed this, uh, lawmakers were saying something, some things along the lines of this was money that's not necessarily being taken away from public schools, but being given to private schools that have been suffering through the, the pandemic, similar in ways to other private businesses that have received public funding. Do you see that as an valid argument? You know, I think it's ironic that the legislature has failed for 23 of the last 25 years to fully fund public schools and failed again this year to fully fund public schools and yet managed to find $10 million lying around in COVID relief funds uh, that they could make available to schools, but those schools are private schools. Uh, you know, th th that strikes me as ironic. Attorney Robert McDuff of the Mississippi Center for Justice differentiated the use of the funds this way. What separates this case is that it involves a specific provision of the Mississippi Constitution that says all, all public taxpayer money that we're going to spend on education goes to public schools because public schools need it. Um, so in your, you know, when you're talking about private businesses, they are not necessarily in competition with public businesses. But here, you know, private schools are distinct from public schools. They have their own funds, and public schools don't. Public schools don't charge tuition. They need, they need every dollar they can get from the state. And the Mississippi Constitution just has a, has a very strong principle and a very strong requirement that all public money go to public schools. What's and, 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 and the Mississippi Constitution has a strong principle and requirement that all taxpayer money go to public schools, not to private schools. So what's next in this process? What, are you, what will you all wait for? We'll, we'll be waiting. The, you know, the judge will issue a decision at some point in the near future. Um, I anticipate that whichever side loses will be appealing to the Mississippi Supreme Court. Attorneys representing the state declined to comment on the hearing. Buck Daugherty, a Liberty Justice Center attorney who represents Mid-South Association of Independent Schools, or MAIS, responded to a request for comment by saying in full, it is important that the students and schools who need these emergency funds were heard in court today. For the group represented in the suit, Parents for Public Schools, the hearing is a chance to avoid what some advocates call a slippery slope. Becky Glover is their policy analyst. Our main takeaway is that we are interpreting, you know, the Constitution based on its plain language that um, prohibits any funds going uh, to or to the support of schools that aren't considered free. And so... I think we're in, in the right right there. When the state legislature passed this bill um, earlier this year, what were your thoughts whenever you heard about it, and what do you think this could mean for funding in future? Well, if it's allowed, it's, it's a slippery slope that, um, you know, the state has already started going down, and so there's no need to perpetuate inequity by going further down that uh, in that direction um, and like we've heard today from various people our public schools have been underfunded for decades 
uh, by choice by the legislature. And just by choice, the legislature could have chosen to make this money available to our very underfunded public schools that serve more than 85% of all school-aged children and families in our state. So, What would you be your message to Mississippians about the importance of ensuring that public funds go to public schools versus going to private institutions? Well, when we invest where the majority of our most precious uh, possession, our, our children, when we invest in our children, we get a great return on that investment. It's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It's the lawful thing to do, according to the plain language of our Constitution. And more than 85% of all school-aged children attend public schools, so you're impacting more than 85% of your future workforce, uh, and you're impacting them in multiple ways uh, that all contribute to quality of life issues. So when we educate all children well and equitably, then we uh, that automatically increase you know has the capacity to increase their individual wealth their collective wealth um, their their you know children who are educated well and equitably are healthier in general than ones who aren't um, they're more likely to be civically engaged they're more likely to be community problem solvers uh, you know investing in public schools is economic development. It is a health issue, especially in Mississippi. Um, and so, and it's a big quality of life issue. We know that we're losing population and things like, you know, like investing in private schools instead of public schools is one of the reasons that people are leaving Mississippi because the legislature chooses over and over again to not invest in Mississippi people. Both parties in the case say they plan to appeal to the Mississippi Supreme Court if the ruling is not in their favor. Coming up, it's been five years since Hurricane Harvey caused massive flooding in Houston, Texas. Now experts are examining green methods of flood control. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's been five years since Hurricane Harvey brought devastating flooding to Houston, Texas, and its neighboring towns. A lot of major flood projects in the area have historically relied on using concrete to quickly channel water into the bay. But nature can also play an important role in slowing down, absorbing, and filtering floodwaters. As part of Houston Public Media's coverage of Harvey's fifth anniversary, reporter Katie Watkins looks at how natural-based solutions can make Houston more resilient. On a muggy Monday at Exploration Green in Clear Lake, morning walkers are on trails that meander along natural-looking ponds. It's a massive flood detention project and public green space. It's also a nature preserve. So we got five phases of water retention of ponds. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. The 
two and three. That's then. David Sharp with the Exploration Green Conservancy. He says each pond can hold up to 100 million gallons of flood water during storms. Once they're full, the water will slowly drain into the bayous. What you'll see most of the time is just a square hole in the ground with a chain-link fence around it. and It's got a dry bottom and it really doesn't support much in the way of life. And you can see this is nothing like that. Uh, each of the five ponds will always have water in it. Uh, you've got the soft edge all around with um, marsh grasses and, and reeds. Exploration Green is frequently cited as one of the best examples of green infrastructure, both locally and nationally. It's a joint collaboration between the Conservancy and the Clear Lake City Water Authority. John Branch with the Water Authority says the project started in 2005. Flooding was getting worse in Clear Lake, and they were open to unique solutions. They held a town hall, and ideas started piling in. Wetlands to help clean the water, a bird habitat island, hike and bike trails. Branch says there was some opposition at first, but Harvey put the project to the test. When it hit, the first pond was nearly complete. I couldn't wait for the street uh, uh, water to go down a little enough so I could hop in my puck up and come over and see, you know, d- is it really working? Because, you know, things look good on paper sometimes. And it says, yeah, you know, that really sounds logical, logical and it'll do the work. But you never know until the first event comes along as to whether or not it's really going to work the way it was planned. Branch wasn't disappointed. The pond filled, and based on claims that had been filed during previous flood events, Branch says they estimated it saved 150 homes. Beverly DeMoss lives in one of those homes. She says flooding from a storm in 2015 damaged her house when water seeped under the carpet. I walked across the floor and it went slosh, slosh. I went, oh, I think we have a problem. She says they were lucky to have flood insurance. Still, it was a major mess. But two years later, when Harvey hit, her house stayed dry. DeMoss says shortly after, she saw John Branch with the Clear Lake City Water Authority at church. I went up and hugged him and said, John, you saved my house. (laughs) When all five phases of Exploration Green are complete next year, it will hold half a billion gallons of water, enough to save about 2,000 homes from flooding. We're seeing around the world there's more of an emphasis on these natural nature-based systems for flood mitigation. That's Danielle Goshen with the National Wildlife Federation. She says with nature-based solutions, the ecosystem is the infrastructure, whether that's through preserving a big tract of land or recreating nature in an urban environment. Nature has an amazing ability to be able to store, slow, and soak water into the ground. And unfortunately, through you know, all the development that's occurred and the way that it's occurred in the Houston area, we've massively disrupted the ability, nature's ability to be able to provide those benefits. Goshen says beyond flood mitigation, green infrastructure comes with a lot of co-benefits. It can also be a recreational space and a wildlife habitat. It can improve water and air quality, capture carbon and reduce heat. I'm Katie Watkins in Houston. Katie Watkins is an environmental reporter with Houston Public Media. This report is an excerpt from their limited series podcast called Below the Waterlines, Houston After Hurricane Harvey. Tune in tomorrow to hear part two of this feature, or you can go and listen now to the entire story in the podcast. It's called Below the Waterlines at HoustonPublicMedia.org slash waterlines or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Coming up, the answers and questions that come from the 1950 census. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. A contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The 72-year rule stipulates identifiable census data must be held for that long before it can be made public. The information is valued by historians, genealogists, and other social scientists in their research. And in April, the federal government released all the data from the milestone 1950 census. William Thompson with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History is presenting during today's History is Lunch, where he'll explain some of the methods and practices that went behind collecting the data during the 1950 census. He begins our conversation by explaining the purpose of collecting the data. It kind of was a two-edged sword. Uh, For the most part, they wanted to get an idea of the number of people uh, living within a particular state for representation in the House of Representatives. The first federal census that was recorded was in 1790. What did it turn out to be over time in terms of how was it used? Well, the information from the census has been used in various ways. Um, The municipalities may use it in order to determine the need for particular services, such as location of schools, uh, housing development, things like that. Uh, Some private individuals or private industry may use it to see where they can find a pool of human resources as far as um, being able to establish a business in this particular area if they have enough people of a certain type that they're looking for as far as education, ability, in order to um, fill their employee numbers. And then, of course, you've got your your, my favorite person, the genealogist, people who are trying to put – family histories together. Uh, The census record is a 10-year snapshot of your household that would tell folks uh, when someone may have been born, when they may have died, when they may have married, you know, things like that. This apparently was the last time that people went door-to-door to get the census and do it on handwritten forms. Is that correct? Kind of, yes. Um, it was the last census where visiting the homes was the primary way of collecting the census information. Now, of course, with every census recording, uh, they mail out the forms now. However, some some areas have um, either the forms are not being returned in a timely manner. Some people may have been missed. So they do still send census takers to the homes. It's just not the primary source of collecting the data at this point. I see. What specifically is interesting about the 1950 census? Well, that depends on uh, the eye of the beholder kind of thing. Uh, For me, it's the sheer numbers of the census, Um, just the number of people that were enumerated and the number of people that it took to record the census information. Um, Also, this census was one of the first where military personnel who are serving abroad or 
employees of the federal government who are living in other countries were also enumerated. Um, so we have a lot of information from uh, the 1950 census that uh, is going to probably pique a lot of interest. What about in terms of counting uh, Mississippi, Choctaw, Indians, other people of color? Now, there were uh, um, schedules for Native Americans. I'm sorry. Um, now, one thing that's interesting about that is that um, there was a separate schedule for Indian, those living on Indian reservations, and there was a the P1 schedule, which is the, the general schedule for everyone. So Native Americans would potentially appear on both the P1 schedule as well as a Native American schedule as well. And what about people of color? Did they go to their homes as well up in the Delta and all of that? Yes, ma'am. The enumerators were given strict instructions to go to every place that they possibly could. Um, there were enumeration districts laid out from from the uh, Delta all the way to the coast. Anything that stands out that's you know you found uh, particularly interesting? One thing that is of interest in the release of the 1950 census is that um, the National Archives uh, partnered with Amazon using their artificial intelligence in order to produce a searchable index. Um, now, this index uses an um, optical character recognition or reader, which means that they're using a computer program to scan handwriting in order to make the census searchable. And there will be mistakes in that. Again, you're having a computer program read human handwriting, and everyone's handwriting is a little bit different. Uh, no matter how we print or if you're writing cursive, everyone's handwriting is, is a bit different. So this OCR uh, is being designed to read that handwriting so that we can search the census for individuals or for different statistics, however you want to, um, however that, that goes for you. Um, but they have produced this, which no other census was released with a searchable index before the 1950. And for someone who uh, does a lot of genealogy work, that's a tremendous uh, step in the right direction for us. Uh, once it was released, we could immediately go to it and start searching for individuals or searching for particular eras. Um, as in the 1940, when it was released, we had to wait for an index to be created with volunteers going through and, and reading the census records and making out an uh, a index from there. Uh, but the 1950 was released, and we were actually able to uh, begin searching on the day it was released. And also there's a transcription tool where we can help to improve this artificial intelligence um, by updating or um, the results that we have found. And if we see something that's wrong or spelled incorrectly or that the OCR did not interpret correctly, we can use that um, transcription tool in order to alert the uh, National Archives and then uh, therefore they'll update the indexing results. Well, William Thompson with the Mississippi Department of Archives, thank you so much for your time in speaking with us about the release of the 1950 census and you're going to be sharing this with the Mississippi Department of Archives. History is lunch at noon 
at Mississippi Two Museums. Thank you for having me today. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 